You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with innovative theologian and neuroscientist Elia Delio, the founder of the Center for Christogenesis, which promotes the vision of Tehar de Shaddah and the integration of science and religion. Our conversation is part of the Closer to Truth series on the Noosphere at 100, the future of human collective consciousness. Closer to Truth is partnering with Human Energy in celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Noosphere. Ilya, welcome. What is Tehar de Shaddan's vision? Well, hello, Robert. That's a big question, which I'll try to answer it briefly. Um, it's a vision of what I would call maybe relational holism, where religion and science, spirit and matter are all, in a sense, part of a whole that cannot be separated. Uh, and he saw that whole in evolution, in a process of dynamic becoming. And, and what's the relationship between that and this term that's uh, attributed to him, although it's complex history, noosphere? So Teilhard um, viewed evolution as basically the rise of thought or the rise of consciousness. He was very attuned to quantum physics and the way mind and matter may indeed be two aspects of the same reality. And therefore, coming from the cosmosphere to the biosphere, the level of biological life, he saw the emergence of a new level of life on the level of mind, more complex mind, that he called the noosphere, um, from the Greek term nois, uh, or the highest portion of the soul or the thinking portion of, of the human spirit, um, and was influential on the Russian scientist uh, Berdansky. Uh, so this new sphere is not um, only with Teilhard, but it's a very interesting level of thinking, thinking mind where we find ourselves today, especially in an age of artificial intelligence. Now, you say that Teilhard's notion of evolution is a process of theogenesis. It's an interesting term. Uh, what is theogenesis and how does it relate to uh, Teilhard's vision? Yeah, that's a, it's a term. So Teilhard coined language to talk about a, a new understanding of God in evolution. And this term theogenesis literally means the birthing genesis of God, theos, uh, God birthing. Um, and in some ways, you know, coming from a Christian perspective where we believe God becomes a uh, human, um, this term, he, he broadened this term to say that God is becoming, becoming God, actually, in and through the process of evolution. And that was, it's really a very novel approach to understanding God, who we think is, you know, fixed and watching over us and the big guy in the sky idea. And Teilhard is, nope, God is that wholeness of being in love, the way I would describe it as that wholeness that is becoming more whole in love in and through the process of evolution. So theogenesis is related to evolution. Evolution is a process of matter and obviously biological as it, as it developed. Uh, that means that God is um, 
uh, very different than the uh, traditional uh, Abrahamic God of uh, all the omnis uh, of uh, yes. omniscient, omnipotent, un- unchanging, immutable, uh, uh, and um, impassable, can't be affected. I mean, all of those terms uh, seem to go right. out the window. Um, they kind of <laughs> do, actually. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's now I'm giving you my interpretation of Teilhard from, you know, in the sense of, from years of just studying and reflecting on his writings. Um, but my colleague Jack Hott and others would, I think, agree with this, that Teilhard was brought up with traditional, you know, scholastic theology, the the guy who, the God who is all knowing, all being, all becoming, all becoming, or just all is. Um, and he uh, himself saw that evolution changes everything. And I think that's one thing we see, we see with Teilhard. Um, we are out of the world of the Newtonian world. We have moved out of, of the world, definitely the ancient Greek metaphysical world. We're in a very new world brought about basically by Darwin and Einstein and all their friends and disciples and scientists. And that world is a world that's dynamic, that's unfolding, that's becoming. And and therefore, Teilhard said, this affects our understanding of the term God. God is a name, a symbol of a mystery that is, you know, at the heart of life. In fact, life itself. And he's basically saying life, the fullness of life, the wholeness of life is in evolution and becoming more life <laughs> in and through this process of unfolding life. Yeah, we'll, we're all going to get into a lot of the details later. We're just trying to sort of start with this overview of uh, Tehart's uh, grand vision of, of what God is now. Now, how about his vision of life, like our life or the structure of life in the noosphere or what's happening now in terms of the complexity and consciousness and the emergence of some hyper-personal relationships. Yeah. So Teilhard would say, you know, the human person is the whole cosmos, in a sense, now on the level of thought. We are, in a sense, the thinking portion of the universe. So everything, we, we kind of recapitulate or we summarize the universe, but we also now can step apart from it. We are the most complex uh, species uh, on this planet, as far as we know. Uh, and that complexity uh, involves self-reflection. The fact that we can know that we know, and the fact that we can know the very universe that has given rise to our very knowing, which is pretty incredible. And so we're not the end, though. We're uh, uh, we're a species in evolution, right? So we're becoming something. And Part, and, and intrinsic to that becoming is thought. And so Teilhard, actually, on this level of the newsphere, back in the late 1940s, around 1950, saw what the computer could do, you know, on this new level of thinking life. Um, and he, he thought, you know, minds could be linked together in type of a global brain, which is exactly what we're beginning to see today. So, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, you know, his is a very open and relational paradigm. And, and this so-called electronic global mind uh, is is integral to, to to the evolution evolutionary process that he's envisioning because it's obviously not a biological evolution; it's a new kind of evolution. But that's also uh, an evolution that directly af- affects the concept of religion. Uh, you use the phrase "church of the planet," which I sort of liked. <laughs> 
Yes, because, uh, well, for several reasons. One, I think institutional religions uh, have not caught up to modern science for the most part. They still remain tied to ancient metaphysical concepts, uh, to ancient Greek philosophical concepts. And we're in a very different world. And Teilhard recognized this in the mid 20th century. And therefore, he saw that we, what we need is a new religion, a new religious sensibility, a new religious awareness, that religion is the depth dimension of life in evolution. It's not you know, something that is extraordinary or coming from a distant planet. It is part and parcel of life. So what he sees is that this God birthing this wholeness of life and evolution is to give rise to a more robust um, complexified wholeness of life, um, which becomes then a place where God, in a sense, God being that love that you know, breathes through the sun and the stars, to use Dante's um, uh, words, uh, then becomes more manifest. Love, not in the sense of a superficial emotional love, but love is the good. Uh, love as that which binds us together um, in a just way. Um, in a peaceful way. So, and this idea could carry forward into a uh, a post-human world that we're envisioning today with with AI. And uh, it was very uh, prescient when he when he thought these ideas very early in the in the computer age, uh, really yes. at its very beginning. Uh, but yeah. the application to a post-human future it doesn't does not seem to need a step function. It seems like a natural extension. Right. So two things. One. Teilhard anticipated uh, that the, he, he did not live to see the internet, but he anticipated the internet and he had been quite at home with the emergence of artificial intelligence. Um, he actually saw that as the next stage of theogenesis, of religion itself. Um, and therefore, part of that development is also the emergence of a new type of person, um, which the post-human, in a sense, is pointing to, um, not a person that's individual and autonomous and distinct apart from everything else, but one who is uh, related to uh, a post-human uh, in that type of deep relationality, so to speak, and therefore a hyper-personal person. And Teilhard used the language of ultra-human, that technology can move us to the next level of becoming ultra-human. So one thing for technology is we become more in evolution. There's a moreness going on. And technology certainly has unveiled that for us, the moreness of, of what we can be. Okay, we're going to get into a lot of detail of this uh, soon, but let me uh, give maybe a, a more formal uh, bio, which you so richly deserve. Uh, Dr. Elio, Elia Delio is a Franciscan sister and a theologian from the Catholic tradition, specializing in science and religion, as we're hearing, how evolution, quantum physics, and neuroscience impacts theology. She holds the Josephine Colony, uh, Connolly Endowed Chair in Theology at Villanova University. She earned two PhDs, neuropharmacology and historical theology. She's the author of 20 books, several winning major awards. So, Ilya, let me uh, read some of the, the nice quotes that I uh, have found in your works. Uh, uh, echoing what you started to say, theology has fallen so far behind that it will take a revolution to get theology on the same train with science and technology. And what we call theology is now just history. 
to really engage in a vital theology, something that's relevant today, everything, including God, must be revisited in light of evolution and quantum physics. That's it. So, <laughs> there you sounds go. Familiar? <laughs> yes, it does, actually. Um, yeah, I, I am a... I am a radical thinker in this way, but honestly, I'm, I'm not doing it just to make waves. Um, theology has always based itself. If you go back in time to the ancients, they were they they were observers of the natural world. Even the Greeks, they were tremendous observers of the natural world. We've lost sight of of nature, and and therefore we've lost sight. We've marginalized science. Um, you know, many people in humanities will say, oh, I, it's too technical for me. I can't understand all that stuff. And so we avoid it and we can't avoid it. I mean, science is our best description of the real, of reality. Um, we have to take science seriously today and we've fallen very far behind. Um, and this is part of our dilemma right now to challenge, to catch up. <laughs> so, Elia, you say we need a new theology for the new sciences. So, Let's go through each of the new sciences that we've talked about, and I want to understand two things about each. One, I want to understand what is it about each that disrupts the old or traditional theology, and then how a new theology can embrace this disrupting factor, whatever it is. So very briefly, let's start with quantum physics, quantum mechanics. What is it about it that disrupts the old theology? Well, I think the first thing is the question of matter itself. I think a lot of theology is still built on a very substance-based notion of matter. And I think uh, quantum physics definitely disrupts matter and tells us that matter is a form of energy. Uh, and therefore, I think we, uh, we have to rethink what we mean by matter because energy itself, as we know from the quantum world, is a little weird because it has a kind of this duality of wave particle existence in its potential states. And therefore, if we follow the Copenhagen school, it takes an observer to determine what the real is. That's very different than saying God created rocks and stones and everything is participating in God. Um, this is a type of matter that's saying, no, you got to show up to the show, you know, in order for me to really become something that's real. So then how does the new theology um, em embrace that or engage that? Well, the new theology is saying, you know, God is a nice idea, but to be real, I think God needs a, a part, an observer. There needs to be a determination. There needs to be, whether it's an act of faith or um, a belief or the enactment of that divine reality within ourselves, you know, coming to that depth within us, a God dimension within us already. Um, that new reality says God is part and parcel of matter. I think that's the one thing that Teilhard brought to us very clearly. God is not some big being apart from matter. God can only be known in and through matter. So God matters to matter. Um, and matter is the place of the absolute for Teilhard. Okay, next is evolution. Uh, what is it about evolution that disrupts the uh, traditional theology? And of course, theology has adjusted to evolution uh, with the concept of theistic evolution, which is obviously controversial, but uh, evolution has been um, uh, embedded within the traditional theology. But you go way beyond that. Yes. So evolution, um, you know, I mean, Darwin's evolution is about 
survival, natural selection, adaptability, and basically it's those processes and mechanisms that account for the optimization of life. But Teilhard actually uh, opted for Bergson, Armé Bergson's notion of evolution of not only readapted for life, but there's a vital impulse or there's something that's dynamic within this life that in a sense uh, accounts for the ever moving transcendence of life itself. So it's a more philosophical, speculative understanding of a scientific process of evolution. Basically, Teilhard's saying evolution um, is the means by which life changes. At critical points in time, new things happen. So it's based on novelty, creativity, and future. And therefore, nothing stays the same. And therefore, he said, evolution is not just science alone. Everything, he said, must now be accounted for in terms of evolution. Everything includes science, religion, God, philosophy, the human person. Um, and so it, it really is saying that our understanding of God is always a dynamic becoming of, of not knowing God, that, that God is not a static being, you know, or, or nothing is static here. So evolution is a game changer. If we, if we could adjust our systems to the principles of evolution, we would resolve half our problems today, but we're not there, so. Okay, well, the, what you said about evolution to begin with, uh, in terms of the creativity and, and the building of complexity, that is in traditional evolution that could be embedded within traditional theology. Once you've brought God into that picture, then you have a step function radical difference. Uh, and in terms of the, the, uh, the, the evolution, not of our thinking about God, but uh, the evolution of literally God, God's self. Correct. That, and God's self, you have to the evolution. That's the huge difference. Yeah, and that's shocking to most people. They're like, what? How can God possibly you know, change? And the whole point is that's the beauty of a, a living God who's in relation to a living world. Uh, you know, if nothing changes, it's usually dead. So um, I, I think, you know, having this notion of God who is becoming a God who's vitally related to us, a God who's affected by us. This is a God who's in real relationship with us um, in Teilhard's view. Yeah. I mean, there is there is an articulation of this issue, even within traditional Christian philosophy uh, of the impassable God, which God never changes, can't be affected, etc., by a God who 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 learns or who grows even from interaction right. with uh, with human beings, and and the question is which in, in the traditional theology, which is the greater perfection, ultimate non changing, or a God that is growing and continuing to uh, yeah. to, to to change yeah. and increasing the perfection. But, but but once again, that's in traditional Christian philosophy where Tihard and you're going is is radically different from that. Yes, because um, what we're saying here is that God is in real relationship with us. That's that's number one. And therefore, that relationship can affect God's own life. Um, and therefore, Teilhard speaks about God as complexity, that, that God is that process um, if that's complexifying in evolution. And what he's saying is that it's a, it actually goes back to an ancient formula in Christianity um, given by the, the writer Athanasius. God becomes human and the human becomes God. Um, and that kind of relationship, uh, which we never we really don't emphasize, uh, is that God becomes really God in and through materiality. 
And the way I explain that is if God is the energies of love, you know, that, that uh, absolute unquenchable love, then that love must be actualized. Um, and therefore, that, that um, actualization of God grows as you might say, we begin come to a deeper understanding or in a sense, a knowing of who we are in that, in that energy of love. So God's growth and our growth are in a sense, coterminous or the term I use is entangled. Uh, it's an entangled relationship that, that these two terms cannot be separated from one another. Um, so yeah, so God growing into what, you know, and, and into the fullness of what we're about and we're growing into the fullness of what God is about. Next is neuroscience. Uh, you've worked in neuropharmacology. Uh, obviously, neuroscience would have direct impact on what is uh, traditionally uh, a soul or an immortal soul. So what is the impact of uh, neuroscience? Well, neuroscience has really been an explosive field. Um, you know, I finished my degree in 1984, and then it just kind of took off like a jet plane, you know. Um, and I think what we learned today, especially... Uh, first of all, the great complexities of the brain, um, but also the levels of consciousness and the way, in a sense, we can begin to see that what we've called the soul in, in, in the past may be indeed uh, in, in a level or a center of integrated consciousness, you know, in the human person. So we can account for maybe a lot more uh, things like the soul. That's a symbol, you know, and, and I think what we're saying from neuroscience, we have a better understanding now of the complexities of the human brain and human consciousness that can account for this symbolic notion of the soul uh, or the heart. Um, so neuroscience is an incredible uh, explosion of, um, you know, how, how we become aware. And honestly, we're still mapping the brain. So I think that that field is just, you know, still to be ex exploded and, and expanded as the brain is the most incredibly fine-tuned instrument one can possibly perceive. And once you begin to study the circuits of the brain, then you begin to realize just how incredibly fine-tuned this life is. It's just beyond amazement and truly um, as good as we are with artificial intelligence, <laughs> there is something about the, the, the fine-tuning of a single neuron that will always elude, I think, our grasp to fully control life. Uh, some Christian philosophers now going with the, the physicalism that neuroscience uh, has, has brought um, have opted for a philosophy called non-reductive physicalism, where the, uh, the human is purely physical, but there's some top-down causation, some non-reductive uh, uh, aspect to it. So there's no immortal soul, uh, but there is, uh, in the Christian world, a hope of a future resurrection by God through this non-reductive mm. physicalism. How, how does that articulate? Well, I would not be a proponent of that school of thinking only because I don't like the using the words physicalism versus non-physical or spiritual. I think we need a new way to conceive of these realities of the human person. Um, and I think our language trips us up and it leads us back sometimes to kind of quasi-dualistic thinking um, that's physical and non-physical. Uh, what we're thinking, and here's where I, you know, would go back to quantum mechanics and or quantum physics and say, 
that what what what's going on there is first of all we're opened up to um, no not every scientist would agree with this but a place of mystery in matter um, that that's one of the things about quantum physics um, matter is not so easily determinate you know a and therefore I think science itself is beginning to grapple with the fact that we don't have um, control over nature that there's a there's a there's an um, a mysterious or an incomprehensible dimension. And I would take that incomprehensible dimension, that mystical dimension of nature, as then that place of what we might call spirit, the, the, the overflow of energy of the spirit, or whatever you might call that root, that root transcendent nature. Um, and But I would look at this whole thing as a holism, a relational holism, where spirit and matter are actually two aspects of the same reality. So I don't want to, otherwise we're thrown back to there's a God that we're, we are participating in and that God always becomes something um, completely, distinctly other than us. Where I think God is um, other than us only so far as God is the fecundity or the overflow. We can't, we can't grasp that God. We're grasped by the fecundity of life itself. So I'm not a proponent of that. You've called Christianity and Christian philosophy a metaphysical mess, and then another, uh, and then another wonderful metaphor, uh, throwing together various theories: Aristotelian, uh, scholastic scholarship, modern scholarship, like a theological smoothie, all <laughs> blended together. So, well, tell me, tell me about the mess and the, uh, the mess and the smoothie. That is funny. Um, well, it's true because. You know, and here, let me just take Pope. I love Pope Francis. I really think he's remarkable. I think his call for environmental sustainability and interconnectedness is fantastic. But I do think, you know, we, he, he, you know, his encyclical incorporates metaphysical principles that are medieval. Um, and so when we have, when we use concepts like we're special creation or, you know, that we are participating in God who is a divine being, uh, who is the source of our being, but not, you know, um, really uh, related to us in any real way, uh, or, or we're not really related to God in any real way. So we, we bring in modern problems and we use ancient metaphysical principles to try to address those problems. And somehow we're trying to, it doesn't work. Uh, I mean, it's like taking a 1920 Ford and putting like 2024 wheels on it. You know, it's just... Uh, putting, you know, trying to make into an electric vehicle. These things just don't work. And so that's why science and religion, they don't need to be in dialogue. They need to be in sync with one another. Religion has to take its cue from science and science must know its limits where it must open up then to the fact that there's some mystery here. There's some transcendent nature here that we can't exactly measure. So is it a smoothie? Sort of, except for it doesn't taste good sometimes. <laughs> it's part of all over the place. You talk about the hard problem of God. Of course, the hard problem, Dave Chalmers um, uh, coined regarding uh, consciousness, but you apply it to God. So what is the hard problem of God? 
The hard problem of God, I think, is the fact that we can only know God from the point of human experience. Um, and so we don't know that. I mean, what does it mean to know God? People talk about God sometimes like they really know, you know, who God is. But God is a name that's just pointing to a mystery. But that mystery is at the heart of our lives. So it goes back to that question that the, um, we can we can you know know God only from the point of physical existence or material existence, material spiritual existence. But the inner life of God, <laughs> uh, which a lot of theologians have spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, we can't say anything really about that adequately except by our own experience. And so. Um, uh, I think we can know that God is, we can, because we can experience God, but what God is, uh, I think that remains, you know, still, um, uh, a mystery. It's a, it's a problem that's hard because I'm, I think it's an irresolvable problem, um, in, in that way. And I'm not even sure God's a problem because we're experiencing this, this wholeness. Um, I guess I'm trying to move language. And I think sometimes quite honestly, religious language has tripped us up. Oh, for centuries, century after century. And I would just put it in a very simple way. Every single person experiences the desire for wholeness at the heart of their lives. There's a sense of a longing for unity, um, for what we call peace, for a sense of happiness. Those are all attributes that we call of God. Um, but this language of God has just brought to mind this big guy in the sky idea, you know, who's watching over us and judging us and all this kind of stuff. And I don't think that God is that at all. I think that God, and, and there's no way we could talk about God without our human experience and participation in, in naming that experience. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure it's a, it's a direct parallel to Chalmers, um, you know, hard problem of consciousness, but in the same way, we don't know, you know, we can describe, um, our experience, our conscious experience, but you know, the problem red, <laughs> just to use the classic example, we, we can tell you all the ingredients that might go into making red, but what does it mean to experience that red? You know, it's the same thing. We can tell you all the attributes of God, but experiencing that God still remains a deeply, deeply personal thing. Again, you have in Tehard's uh, philosophy, God, God as emerging or holy um, uh, synonymous with matter, and that you say matter is formed by mind, and mind is the reflection of matter. So you have this kind of circular process that's mind, matter, God, kind of, kind of all fused together as, as a as a relational whole. Um, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to get some some sense yeah. out of that. So uh, that that kind of paradigm really comes out of Teilhard's notion that. There's matter is bifacial to use his language. It has an inside and an outside. Um, he speaks of, you might say, consciousness and attraction as that inside and outside. Um, and what he's basically saying is that this matter, uh, first of all, there is no matter apart from mind. That, that's one thing he's saying. So he does hold to a type of panpsychism. And then he's saying that that mattered mind is in evolution, so it's increasing. And, and basically his idea is that as matter complexifies, uh, it consciousness rises. So that law of complexity consciousness, and then it reaches a point where it becomes not just uh, a complexification of consciousness where we kind of just know our environment, 
and have a sense of spirits in the environment, but we come to a, a even more complexified consciousness of a beyondness, a transcendence. And I think that's the root of um, our axial religions um, or this emergence. And that's and that's where God comes in that transcendent factor. Now you're building a transcendent factor based on an evolutionary process. Uh, is it a gradual process, or was God there from some kind of beginning? If there was a beginning, and just gets yeah. more and more godly, but God was always there. Or at some point in this complexification process of consciousness did yeah. the concept of God kind of emerge? Well, you know, I think, again, um, how we conceive God is important here. So um, I think I could, you know, there's one way to conceive that from all eternity, there has been this wellspring of the possibilities of life or the ideas of life or the potentials of life, which which is God, you know. And so in a sense, we can say that those potentials for life have always been from all eternity. I put I put the whole thing in terms of love because, first of all, uh, as a Christian, the New Testament identifies God is love. So I think that's a great way to talk about God. Um, love is is always about not just um, the ideas of existence. Love is there's something about love that's very unitive, that's creative, and itself is transcendent. And so we can say that God is love from all eternity, has will to share that love um, because love is perfected not within itself, but outside itself, beyond itself. Um, to fall in so, love with so yourself. The love, the love was there from all eternity. And yes. as, as, as evolution goes on and complexity occurs and consciousness occurs, uh, God becomes more fully formed and then other creatures develop as well. Something like that. It, it, in a sense, there's two things. I want to just clarify that. First of all, you know, to say what is the beginning, that question of beginning from a scientific perspective is a very uh, murky question. So sure, we don't sure. know what the beginning of this universe is. Um, and therefore, I think I'd like to say that from all eternity, that a God of love um, has always uh, had a desire to share that love. So love is always outward moving. So God is always an outward moving God. This is always a God who's seeking to become other than God, to become really fully God in the other. Um, and, you know, we can say, you know, did God make a decision to have this Big Bang universe? Um, those questions annoy me, quite honestly, because um, I leave it to science to, you know, we don't know if we're coming out of an oscillating universe or if the universe itself is eternal. So I, I'd like to leave that to, to science to, to kind of, um, you know, to, to understand better. But what we can say from, from a, a religious perspective that there is a point in time where, you know, life begins to emerge in such a way that mind begins to form. And therefore, um, Teilhard would say there's a driving energy here, which he names as love. He, he calls it the Omega principle, that there's a, a principle of wholeness, a wholeness of, we might say, presence in love that's driving evolution to more being um, in love. And love, again, not as a feel-good love, love as unitive, cooperative, transcendent. Um, it accounts for the the when we say the moreness, there's a transcendence in nature. Um, we might call it emergence, you know, evolutionary emergence, but um, that's what we're, that's, and so he's bringing these things together, um, God and evolution in terms of the transcendence of nature towards more life. And he's saying that God is that um, power 
uh, of love at the heart of life, pulling us toward more life because God is in a sense the, that if we want to take that name, God as the symbol of all potent life's potentials, then God is not only within, but God is also up ahead. God is the, the possibilities of what we can become as well and drawing and pulling us into those possibilities, but we have to choose. So one thing with Teilhard is you can't be an active bystander here. You can't just sit on the side and say, well, let's see what God does. You know, you have to participate in this God project, in this God adventure. Um, God only comes to that reality. Yeah. Ilya, in your book, The Not Yet God, I love your radical title, you present evolution as God in the making that God's perfection is up ahead as God is completed in evolution, the God Omega that uh, T.R. talks about. But you talk about it as Christogenesis. Uh, is there a distinction between Christogenesis and Theogenesis? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, Teilhard used both terms. In fact, he used Christogenesis more. But when we talk about God in evolution, a God who is becoming God in and through material evolution, we're really talking about the Christ in evolution. So many people, I guess this idea of the Christ, they link to Jesus of Nazareth, which is okay. You know, Jesus was declared as the Christ by the early church, but Christ really means that promise of God, that kingdom of God or reign of God, whatever you want to call it, like God's plan or vision for creation now in flesh, in the matter. So what he's saying is to put this in another way, like this plan for this, this vision of creation is taking flesh in evolution. That's one way to put it. Um, and that's what we mean by, and it's taking flesh in a personal way. So it's not like, you know, the grand plan from, you know, uh, from the government, it's it's the grand plan that every person must come to uh, know, experience, and enact. Okay, so in that sense, uh, I see a clean distinction between theogenesis, which is very specifically related to the process of evolution and the, the, the relational wholeness of God with matter and spirit as an understanding of the birthing of God, the concept of God. But Christogenesis now has this broader application where it engages uh, all of the the other elements that are part of the the, the structure of reality and, and how it's uh, how it is being birthed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, this notion of God and flesh, or God united to materiality, is essentially what the Christ is about. So every aspect of creation would be. Christic, to use um, Teilhard's language, every leaf, every bird, every earthworm, um, everything has that love of God uh, within it. It's it's at the heart of it, and so that same love enfleshed in our own lives then becomes the birthing of the Christ. And so that birthing of the Christ is not distinct from God; it is God. But we we distinguish these terms to say that God is that 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 language, that, that symbol of the whole, and that whole is in evolution in a deep and personal way. And that's how I might distinguish God from uh, the, the Christogenesis. One yeah. thing about this relationship, love is personal, very simple, you know, uh, and therefore a God who is love is a deeply personal God. And that means each person must take responsibility <laughs> for their lives in that birthing of the wholeness of their lives. 
uh, it doesn't come about by a creed or a doctrine. I would think from a metaphysical point of view, my reaction was that the, the, the whole structural theme that uh, you present, that uh, Tihar presents, is closer to a process theology than to any of the Christian philosophy in any form that I've seen. That's exactly what it is, Robert. It's a process theology. So um, my work these days is much more aligned with uh, the Center for Process Studies for with uh, the ideas of Alfred North Whitehead and many of the great process thinkers. Yeah, process insofar as it's a deeply relational view of God and self and world. Um, and that's what and that's why we think it's the theology actually for the 21st century because it's about relationship. Uh, very simply. You, you speak of TR, it's a Christian pantheism. Now, when I, I would hear a Christian pantheism. My first reaction is that's a nice oxymoron. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but clearly it's not being said that way. So explain to me why a Christian pantheism is not an oxymoron. Yeah. Well, let me just say, you know, Teilhard himself is the one who used that term Christian pantheism. He wrote about yeah. Getting a whole essay on Christian uh, Christian pantheism, so I've had these discussions recently because people say no, 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 it's panentheism, um, right. and I'm going to this you know in a very simple way. Uh, I think panentheism is I, I wouldn't dismiss it here, but it's about a, a there's an implicit understanding of being here, and why I use pantheist because I I really want to emphasize the entanglement of God. And here I want to draw upon the fact that we do live in a quantum reality, um, that you know everything is related literally to everything else. Uh, and so, uh, including God. And in fact, that's how Teilhard you know, expressed it. I see in the world a completion of everything, including the absolute. Those are his words. Um, and, and therefore it truly is, it's a healthy pantheism, if I can put it that way. Um, it's a pantheism that doesn't collapse God, because it's about relationality. And to use Teilhard's language, union, where there's true union, there's differentiation. Um, because, you know, if I go back to love as that um, expression of unitive reality, love doesn't absorb one into the other. If it does, it's a very unhealthy relationship. Love differentiates, right? We become truly who we are um, in and through the unitive nature of love. And that's why we talk about a pantheism as a, um, a unitive reality that actually is the source of diversity or differentiation. And I, I honestly, I actually think if we can revive uh, pantheism in a healthy way, we'll do much better in the 21st century. Well, clearly it's not panentheism because there's nothing about God in, in your model, Terrence's model, that is outside this matter, mind, evolutionary process. There's nothing of God outside of that, which, which, right. which so, is pantheism. So pantheism is the right term. And so many people say, oh, well, that's a totally imminentist. You know, it's totally imminent. There's no transcendence. And I'm saying right. the whole thing is about transcendence. That's the whole point. There is no transcendence without imminence and imminence itself obviously doesn't contain everything since we're constantly longing for something more. So one would have to just concede that transcendence is at the heart of imminence. And that's why you don't have to separate these things. You don't need a God outside and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and therefore, let's let's give real, you know, let's give pantheism its due. Let's bring it back 
and and reignite it with a healthy sense of unity reality. So is Christ still salvific? In other words, does salvation traditionally, does that mean anything anymore? Or is there existence, consciousness after death in a material world? Is there a resurrection? Any of these traditional concepts apply? I do think they do, actually. I think they're, they're very good concepts to keep in mind. But salvation is not being rescued from a fallen world. I think salvation, to use Teilhard's language, making an option for the whole. Um, and this is where I think Carl Jung is very helpful. We have to become whole within ourselves uh, to help make whole that which is among ourselves, you know, and, and that which is our world. Salvation is, is wholeness. It's healing and wholeness, literally. Um, we become heal healed and whole, so does the earth and so does life. Life, therefore, what does it mean to resurrect? I think we live um, in and through our relationships and love. Um, and that's what I think we, we live on in, in this God of love insofar to the extent that we love here on earth. Forgiveness, peace, um, compassion. Sure. But is there a any kind of traditional afterlife after, well, after one's physical death in the materiality of this world? I, I love that question. I get it very often. I say, well, I haven't died yet to really know. But um, I, okay. I, do believe, I do believe that life lives on. I do think what we are in the core personality, what we are, will live on eternal, like will live on forever um, in, in a new way. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think we'll be dissipated and taken up just into new, new forms of energy. But it's also about memory, which would be another, you know, a conversation here. But um, we do live on in the memory of persons, but in the memory of the universe itself. So yes, I think the core personhood does live on in a new and vital way. Um, I think I think eternal life is going to be much more interesting, by the way, <laughs> than birth life. <laughs> okay, you, you last question. You extend the noosphere into intergalactic life. That the pursuit of extraterrestrial life is, as you say, not merely a scientific endeavor, but also a theological endeavor as well. Right. Uh, Teilhard was clear that we are not the end species, that we're a species in evolution. He saw that the um, uh, the law of complexity consciousness was not limited to Earth, that co that complexity of, of consciousness would continue on uh, in intergalactic life um, as we uh, discover those forms of life. And honestly, God cannot be limited to planet Earth, really. I mean, if God is love love and the infinite fecundity of life itself must include all forms of life wherever possibilities of life are in the cosmos so yes we're a we're a little mid-sized galaxy but please do not think that we're the last you know straw here it's it's that, much that, more exciting beyond us i'm sure of it that, and, that's great Eli. we'd like to think that closer to truth global exemplifies the noosphere dealing with these questions on a global basis unifying different uh, religions and ethnicities and different people following the same goal. So many thanks, Ilya. Viewers can watch over 1,000 videos on consciousness on the Closer to Truth website and YouTube channel, all facets of consciousness, brain mechanisms, free will, personal identity, panpsychism, dualism, idealism, parapsychology, souls and spirits, life after death, cosmic consciousness, all infused, though, with critical thinking. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks, Ilya, again. It was great. Thank you, Robert. Great to be with you.
to watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.